The Supreme Court sent a case back to Oregon for a do-over. It's a decision in the case involving Aaron and Melissa Klein. We'll take you to the argument so you can hear how it goes. Hi, I'm Stuart Shepard, and this is First Liberty Live. Thank you for liking and sharing our videos and getting the word out about our cases here at First Liberty. Stephanie Taub has, is one of our attorneys who's been working alongside Aaron and Melissa Klein behind us here for many years now. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me on. First, for those who've not heard of this case, give us the summary of it. What's it about, just in a nutshell? Great. So this case started way back in 2013, if you can believe it. That's been over 10 years. Yeah. And this is the case where two women came to a small family-owned bakery called Sweet Cakes by Melissa. And Sweet Cakes explained that they weren't able to create a custom-designed custom, d custom -designed wedding cake for their same-sex wedding because of their sincerely held religious beliefs. And so they've been fighting, and First Liberty has been fighting alongside them for the past, oh... About 10 years now. A long time. Uh, for To protect their First Amendment rights. And this has been to the Supreme Court twice. That's right. This you can't right, overstate this that. Case. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And both times the court agreed with us, essentially, and sent it back down to be reconsidered. And that's what we're about to hear from the court in Oregon. Uh, set the scene for us. What's about to happen? What are we going to hear? Absolutely. So you're going to hear an appellate argument at the Oregon Court of Appeals. So this will be, there will be three judges from the Oregon Court of Appeals, and there will be two advocates, one on behalf of Aaron and Melissa Klein, and that will be our network attorneys from Boyd and Gray. And, yeah. and then the other side is going to be uh, Oregon, uh, the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries, and an attorney representing that side. And unlike what you see on crime shows on TV, there's not a jury and they won't be calling witnesses. All that, the witness part of it happened in the lower courts long ago. They're just considering what's already before them, right? That's right. So there's going to be a lot of questions, and they're going to be asking about the legal principles of this case. All right. What are you going to be listening for? So this is a very important precedent that will protect business leaders of faith, or it could impact business leaders of faith, especially in Oregon. So we're going to be listening for uh, free speech arguments mostly in light of 303 Creative, that Supreme Court case. And so we're arguing that the free, free speech protects the right of every business owner uh, to to really not be forced to send messages that go against their beliefs. How long till we get a decision? When might we expect one? Oh, it's, it's hard to tell. It could be anywhere from a couple of months to even a year or two. All right. So it's, it, we'll just find out whenever they release it, right? We'll find out. Anything else before I let you go that you'd like people to know about this? Well, you can follow all of our cases by going to firstliberty.org. Um, we are here, and we're, we're looking forward to seeing how this oral argument goes. All right. Stephanie, thank you for your work on this. I appreciate your heart for this case. And now we're going to let you listen in as the case of Aaron and Melissa Klein is heard again at the Oregon Court of Appeals. We have two argued cases this morning. The first is Klein versus Bureau of Labor and Industries. That will be argued in person. We will then recess and switch to the remote format for our second case of the morning, which is Johnson versus City of Bend. Um, so with that, we'll get to Klein. We are here on remand from the United States Supreme Court 
for the second time to reconsider our prior ruling in light of the case 303 Creative versus Alanis. We have received and read the party's supplemental briefs. We've read the decision in the case. We've refreshed ourselves on our own decision, and we've sent you some questions and hypotheticals that we hope that you'll be able to use as you present your cases to us to, to help us understand the scope of your legal arguments. Uh, so with that, um, we've allowed an hour total for argument in this case. I know you both reserved, or not, you both have not reserved time for rebuttal. Um, Mr. Whitehead has not. Uh, we will start by hearing from petitioners, Mr. Conde. Thank you, Chief Judge, and may it please the court. When this court first confronted the free speech issues in this case, it observed that the Supreme Court had never decided a public accommodations case involving highly customized expressive services in the nature of art. Now it has. 303 Creative establishes a simple, straightforward rule. A state may not enforce a public accommodations law to compel customized expressive services for a same-sex wedding a person sincerely objects to on religious grounds. 303 Creative applies even when the order compels no specific message, even when the service is made in collaboration with a customer, and even when the defendant is a for-profit commercial retail establishment. The only question left open on remand is whether the client's service is expressive. It is. We know that the client's service is expressive because of how it begins. It begins with Melissa Klein sitting down with the clients and asking personalized questions about the wedding. She then- Did we get that far in these set of facts? We do. That's in Melissa Klein's undisputed declaration submitted at summary judgment. I think uh, it's also in this court's opinion in Klein 1. We agree with how this court described the facts in Klein 1, and that's consistent with Melissa Klein's declaration, with, which Oregon does not dispute. Do I understand the facts correctly that in, in the initial visit that Mr. Klein responded when he heard uh, in answer to his questions the names of two women, that his response was, we don't do wedding cakes for same-sex uh, marriages for religious reasons, something to that effect. That's is correct. He, that's his response. Yeah. And is it true in something like the Perkins broadcast that he said, um, similarly, uh, quote, we don't do same-sex marriages, comma, same-sex wedding cakes, unquote. Is that true? That's correct as well. Um, when you refer to sitting down with the client and going through the process, uh, then would I be correct in understanding that uh, the petitioners never got to that process, and that they rejected the petitioners uh, at the outset upon hearing the names? Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we think that's irrelevant here because I think Melissa's declaration establishes that they're in the business of making custom design cakes. That's the service they offer to the public. And because that's the only service they offer to the public in terms of weddings, we think that Melissa Klein didn't have to get all the details from the customers before refusing service. So they couldn't, the, the customers couldn't come in and say, we just want a real plain cake. That's not what the, the, your client's business is. They wouldn't have sold them a plain cake. Well, they would have sold a plain cake, not for a wedding. When it comes to weddings, I think Melissa Klein takes that very seriously. They wouldn't if, have sold them any cake for a wedding. That's not what the record shows. Melissa's declaration is undisputed. She said, that she's in the business of making customized wedding cake creations for weddings. That's because weddings are very important to Melissa Klein's beliefs. So she, 
if anybody wanted to just buy a cake for a wedding, they could easily go to Costco. They could easily go to Baskin Robbins. That's not what the clients are selling. The reason the clients were in business is because they make special creations that one of those stores doesn't make. That's why they charge far more money than one of the stores but, would charge. So, so 303 Creative resolved on stipulated facts that were essential to the decision. And those stipulated facts were that what the wedding website was pure speech. I, I would disagree with that uh, slightly, Your Honor. Uh, so I think the Tenth Circuit found that the wedding websites were pure speech, and the Supreme Court agreed with that. Uh, it was stipulated that the wedding websites were expressive, which I don't, I don't think, I don't know that it's the same thing as pure speech, but the Tenth Circuit said the wedding websites were pure speech. And, and the Supreme Court resolved the case on the idea that it was pure speech, correct, though. Correct, yes. Okay. So we don't have pure speech in this case. We don't have a stipulation about pure speech. We don't have a court finding of pure speech. Why are we, why then does 303 Creative compel us to do something different than we did in Klein 1? Because we think there is speech here. We think when Melissa is sitting down and making drawings, making designs for her customers, she's speaking just as much as a fashion designer making a customized wedding dress for a wedding. And that, 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 I mean, that certainly may be true as a, as a hypothetical matter when we're thinking about the business model. But on the facts of this, this case, we have a law that on its face doesn't target speech. And you have a customer that, that walks in and wants a cake. The conversation doesn't get very far. We don't because we don't know, you know what particular, you know, apart from it being a wedding cake, we don't know what, in terms of design, um, the, the clients were going to ask for. You know, under, under those circumstances, how have petitioners you know, met sort of a minimum burden of production to show that the application of the law would violate their First Amendment rights? because they submitted an undisputed declaration showing that in every case what they do is they t sit down with the customers, take down their personal story, want to make a wedding cake that matches the, the uh, wedding day theme, and then Melissa sits down, makes drawings. Drawings are pure speech. Theo 3 Creative says that on page 10 of the slip opinion. And then uh, after that, she embodies that in a useful article, but we don't think that that means that Melissa Klein's designs are not protected speech. We think they're protected speech just as much as a fashion designer's designs are protected and, and, speech. And sort of to Judge Hellman's question, would the record support the inference that you know, had the Bowman criers asked for a sheet cake frosted in white, then that would have been refused just based on the fact that that's not a custom enough cake? I think what the record shows is that's not the client's business. That's not how they hold themselves out to the public. And Melissa Klein testifies that if somebody wants a sheet cake for their wedding, they go somewhere else. They go to Costco. They go to Baskin Robbins. They don't go to so the client. So she clients. would not sell them the sheet cake? I, ha I don't have, uh, she's not here to testify. What I do know is that she submitted a declaration that's undisputed. So I think the court needs to take the facts as they are in the record. Right, but I mean, her saying people don't come here for a sheet cake can mean a lot of different things. It could mean that people, people 
don't generally come here and buy a sheet cake because it's more expensive and, and most people probably, if that's what they want, would go elsewhere. But I guess the idea is, does, I mean, I, I think, I don't think the record is clear on what the, what all that, what that means all the way out. So I think what we have, we don't have the, I think what is challenging is we don't have this particular set of people interacting with Melissa in the way that she says she normally does in this kind of a business. So we don't have evidence that she was actually asked to do any of the creative things. Well, we, what we do have is the declaration, as I said, and I think a rule that requires a person that's engaged in designing cakes, that a rule that requires them to sit down with the customers and specify the particulars of the cake before denying service, I think that's not a very good rule. I think that's a rule that leads to conflict. I think that's a rule that leads to litigation. Well, we how, I mean, how does, <laughs> I guess that uh, the, we're kind of jumping, you know, we're going to jump to the very last hypothetical we posed then, which is um, because that, right, we're talking about burdens and rules, right? So if your clients want to say that they have an absolute right not to speak for things that they don't believe in against their principles. Mm -hmm. That comes in direct conflict with the law of the state, which says that public accommodations are open to all without any barriers. And so if your clients are going to ask for an exception based on free speech, how are other citizens here supposed to know about that so that they don't go into a place of public accommodation that holds itself out as open to all, only to learn in exceptionally sort of humiliating ways that it's not actually open to them at all. So what we're asking for is a very narrow rule. We're just asking you to hold that the client's peculiar business model is protected. If the clients were in the business of selling sheet cakes, that, that could be compelled. Right, uh, but, but the ruling that we give in this case, as much as you'd like to say it's a very specific narrow rule, is not only going to apply in this case. There are going to be permutations and, and re, repercussions coming out of this case. And so I'm asking, what I want to know is, under your concept of how the law works, how are Oregonians supposed to interact with each other in ways that are comply with the First Amendment and comply with the laws we have in this state about non-discrimination? I think 303 Creative speaks to the point. It says that uh, when the First Amendment and public accommodation statutes collide, the First Amendment prevails. And to the extent Oregonians don't like that, the solution is speech on the other side. If people don't like the client's But I'm asking speech, how clients don't have to go into a business and be told, we won't serve you because of the celebration you want. Well, what we saw in what happened in this case, for example, is that Oregonians spoke up. Uh, we had the Ace of Cakes, a celebrity chef, uh, posting a video. Right, but I'm going back one step further. How do the Bowman criers know not to even walk in your client's door? Well, your clients are not going to serve them. Why do they have to walk in the door to hear that? I'm, I'm sorry that, that that's offensive to them, but I think the First Amendment protects offensive speech. That's what the First Amendment is all about. In a business context? In a business That's setting? what 303 Creative says. So your clients would have no burden to let citizens, ahead of time, to let citizens know about their, free, about their principles 
they would just be able to exercise their rights, the free speech rights, as they choose. I think that's correct, yes. Okay. I don't think uh, through, through Creative had any burden of, of providing advance notice to her clients either. Right. She was still protected. I think 303 Creative seems to me to be a pretty narrow holding based on the specific facts of that case that were the stipulations and uh, not, not necessarily very wide-ranging. Yeah, but we, thank we you. agree it's narrow. We think what we're asking for here is also narrow. We're just asking for fashion designers who customize a wedding dress or for custom cake designers who customize wedding cakes to be protected. Can I ask a question? I mean, it, it seems like this case has both forward-looking components and backwards-looking components. And of course, the forward-looking component probably goes to your argument that you're, you want a rule that says the client's business model is X. It's a custom design business model, just like the business model in 303 Creative. And sort of going forward, it's clear under 303 Creative that that business model is protected. So, that, that's one question, but there's also the retrospective question of customers walking in, having the experience of denial of service without even really getting very far, you know, in a business model, you know, at all, without an establishment of facts as to, you know, what they were, you know, asking or whether what they were asking would even, you know, ultimately it requires somebody to issue something that an objective observer would consider to be a message of any any sort, you know, but whatsoever. How sort of for the what's your argument with respect to the you know backwards looking part of, of the case about how the law should apply to the particular interaction that occurred here? Customers walked in, said, you know, the baker finds out that the wedding is going to be between two people of the same sex, no other contacts provided, and just says no at that, that point, and they don't talk about what the ultimate work product would be. You know, what's, what's the rule of law there? I think the rule is if the client's service is, includes speech, then they don't have to provide it. I think uh, it, it doesn't matter that here we didn't get into the particular details of the cake, because I think the client's established in their declaration that the service they produce is uh, customized and expressive. And so they don't have to provide it in any situation under the First Amendment, uh, unless they are you know, being uh, biased uh, and not, uh, they don't have good faith uh, legitimate. Can I clarify, counsel? Are, we would all agree that 303 Creative is a compelled speech case on stipulated facts that it involved pure speech. And I think I hear you saying your business model you would have us find is pure speech and is com would be compelled speech no matter what a customer wants walking in the door, if I understand your argument to so far. You're actually saying we should get this in the compelled speech pigeonhole. My question to you is what's wrong with Klein 1? Um, because Klein 1, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, really, that's why I'm here all ears, What's wrong with the constitutional analysis with Supreme Court decisions cited saying this is a matter of expressive conduct, not treating it as compelled speech, but as expressive conduct, because you've got all the other things. Now, I realize in your reply brief in particular, you tried to pull those things apart, the icing apart from baking the cake and all that. But 
what's wrong with claim one? What's wrong with the constitutional analysis? I don't see anything in petitioner's brief that says the Court of Appeals got it wrong in treating this. I mean, I do recognize that you argued, well, it also fits in the um, expressive. You, you feel that, uh, that your clients survive with expressive conduct. But what's wrong with Klein 1 and expressive conduct in treating this that way under the constitutional principles that I haven't heard criticized? What's wrong with Klein 1? So uh, we're, we're not arguing that the clients are engaged in expressive conduct. Our argument is not that they send a message when they bake a cake. Our argument is what they're doing up front when they're designing the cake is speech. I don't like the term pure speech. I just call it speech. Uh, I think the difference between speech and expressive conduct is why the Supreme Court uses the term pure speech. Uh, but when the clients are designing, when they're drawing, that is expressive activity protected under the First Amendment that is not tied to any particular physical conduct. She, Melissa's creating these designs in her mind. She's making drawings. I think that's quite different from moving your body in a particular way or burning a flag or behaving in a way that sends a particular message. So basically, I think you're saying Klein 1 was error mm -hmm. because on these facts, you can't look at this as expressive conduct. A That's mixed right. bag of both That's some right. sort of design, you know, your model, suppose we accept your model, that the facts didn't get to, but you have the declaration that that's what they right. normally do. But your point is it can't be looked at as expressive conduct? No, I don't think it is expressive conduct, no. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think the designing is speech. I think maybe one way of, of thinking about this uh, is imagine that Aaron Klein and Melissa Klein part ways and Melissa Klein opens her own uh, cake design shop. All she does is design the cakes. She designs the cakes, she makes the drawings, and then she comes up with all the instructions that the baker will use. And then that's what she sells to her customers. I would think that in that situation, we have speech, not just conduct. And then, you know, if the baker wants to use that design, that's physical conduct. Bully can compel it, just as bully can compel, uh, you know, uh, standardized off-the-shelf cakes. Uh, that's not compelled speech. Uh, but what we're arguing here about is that first component of the service, that designing, which we think is speech. And I don't think... I don't think anything happens when, when there's, just because the clients are vertically integrated, that doesn't mean that uh, that first part of the process loses its protection under the First Amendment. I'm not trying to be difficult, but this yeah. is just devil's advocate. Wouldn't your argument basically unroll all of the expressive conduct cases back to saying, well, but there was an element of pure speech when the folks wanted to camp in you know, Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., and uh, therefore, the, the Supreme Court was wrong in treating that as expressive conduct that had both elements that could be regulated um, and elements of speech because they wanted to protest homelessness. Okay, you, wouldn't your argument basically roll back all expressive uh, conduct case law? No, I don't think it does. I think. You can make the same argument for 303 Creative, right? There's also physical activity involved in creating a website. Uh, so we think we're just like 303 Creative. Uh, I don't think there's any difference in that sense. Uh, the Supreme Court in that case distinguished O'Brien, said O'Brien didn't apply 
The dissent argued O'Brien did apply. I think we're in the same situation as Theater Creative was. Um, so your argument is that you know, in this scenario, Melissa is kind of like an architect. She's the designer, and that's, uh, in your view, kind of yes. high-level speech. Yes. Um, Aaron's role as baker is yeah. more like the builder. Correct. And sort of if they segregated those components of their business model yeah. such that the baker was separate and people came in with their own design, the baker would have to comply with the public accommodations Correct. law. Yes but because of the design component, um, we're at the 303 creative level. Yes, that's exactly okay. right. So um, I think the court has asked a, a lot of hypotheticals. We haven't really gone through them. I think that's because, uh, under my argument, the hypotheticals, uh, for the cakes at least, wouldn't matter, uh, right? Because uh, our argument is that the clients are not in the business of selling uh, any of the cakes uh, except for hypothetical C cakes. Uh, those are the personalized uh, wedding cakes. Uh, and I see that my time is up, so unless the court has further questions. You may reserve the rest for your rebuttal as planned, but Mr. Whitehead. May it please the court. Council Carson Whitehead on behalf of the Bureau of Labor and Industries. Um, and so, as we know, we are back here for the third time, and this is the third time that petitioners have argued that their cake baking is pure speech, and this court should reject that argument again, just as it did in 2017, just as it did um, on the first remand, um, because nothing has changed in the underlying law. 303 Creative does not disturb any of the case law about expressive conduct um, because it wasn't a, it, it may, expressive conduct It may case. not, but it definitely disturbs some of our analysis from the first first time time around. So it would be probably most helpful to engage with the aspects of our of analysis that it does disturb. You know, in particular, we the first time around you know relied on the notion that it was a collaboration, so it's not solely speech um, and, and sort of other factors that, that the U.S. Supreme Court um, said don't matter in, in, in this area. So, so I, I think w when I say it didn't disturb, like the, the basic notion that of having of conduct that is joined with speech together, that, that expressive conduct is kind of a distinct legal theory, that that's, that's a type of expression that's regulated differently than pure speech. I don't think 303, doc, 303 creative doctrinally didn't, didn't change that. Whereas I, I feel the petitioner's argument about 303 creative really does collapse that analysis. And I don't know how anything would be expressive conduct under the way that they're viewing pure speech. Um, but as to, to your question, Your Honor, for how, how the, the statements from 303 Creative about collaboration and kind of a custom process works here um, and interacts with the facts of our case, I think you, you do have to go back to the specific facts and the stipulations in 303 Creative that, that led to the court's analysis, because those stipulations are quite different than the facts that we have here. Um, through the declarations that were presented on summary determination. 
Um, and I think those, the key differences, so, so we have both that would be a collaborative process, at least to the extent that the clients say that they sit down with a client and they talk about you know, the sort of cake that they want. What we know from this record is that the clients did make, a, you know, a, I think, a variety of cakes. They made a cake for um, uh, the mother of one of the complainants in this case, and it was a, a, a simple white cake with a purple ribbon accent and purple flowers. Um, I think it was probably tiered, um, so it wasn't a sheet cake, but it was, it was quite simple um, in that sense. And the testimony shows that that's when, when they went in for the cake tasting, I think that's what the Bauman Criers wanted, kind of the same simple well, cake this, design. I mean, the simplistic part of it, though, I mean, you look at some of the, you know, to use the example that's been out here, you some, look at some of the fashion that goes down the runway, and some of that is really simple, but that doesn't mean it's not creative. So how, how do you respond to this idea that there's, that there's some kind of aspect of this that needs to be, the, the splitting, basically, of the that I heard is the argument that the design now is somehow split out from our consideration, the design of the cake is split out from our consideration of the crafting of the cake. Well, I, I mean, one, that's a new argument from the clients that's raised for the first time. Now, this notion that you can split out, the idea that Aaron Klein and Melissa Klein had wholly different functions, I, I think the record does show that he did more of the baking side and she did more of the design side, but they were presented this as a complete service that they sold to the public. So I don't, like, the service is the creation of the cake that includes the baking and the design. I mean, those, that is the heart of the expressive conduct, that it's those two things together. If there wasn't an expressive component, obviously it would just be conduct and there would be no speech issue at all, which, which was our, uh, has been our position all along that the, at the point of the denial of services, that was, you know, they didn't have any information about the cake. They were saying that's a pure status-based denial. We're not going to make this product for you because of your protected status. And we think that's pure conduct. And this court in 303, I mean, this court in its 2017 opinion says, well, there's some expressive elements here. So arguably, this is in the nature of expressive conduct and went down that track. So that's still, you know, I, I think that is the conduct that's being regulated by uh, Oregon's law is that denial of services, of refusing to do for this couple what they would do for a different couple on the basis of their protected status. Counsel, can I, can I ask you to couch that in burden of coming forward and burden of persuasion terms? Because if we posit that Aaron Klein refused uh, service upon hearing two women's names, but we also recognize, uh, as uh, counsel has argued, that there was a, a declaration saying, well, the normal process is to sit down and confer. Okay, so we've got the um, speech element that is the expressive part of expressive conduct, if that's the pattern, a pattern if that's the pattern of analysis. What I'm trying to get at in terms of what does the Boley order mean in terms of its factual findings, did... Um, the clients carry their burden of coming forward with a refusal at the outset on two names for any discussion of design, or does it suffice to say, well, normally we would have talked about design, but we didn't get to that. Do they carry the burden of coming forward? And if they do, then what does the Bowley order, so that's question one. Question two, what does the Bowley order mean in terms of burden of persuasion, whoever's to be persuaded as to whatever the factual finding is, on speech, 
when it didn't get any further to that, did the Bowley's order, do we, how do we look at the facts as an appellate review court on the Bowley order about what the burden of persuasion means in terms of what Bowley found factually? How do we look at the Bowley order? And can I make that question just a little bit worse for you? Because one of your, 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 your <laughs> question, one of your comments reminded me of the procedural posture of this case, which was summary determination. And mm-hmm. so, are there issues of fact now in light of 303 creative? Um, and if that's a, that's probably completely left field for both of you. So if you don't have an answer, you don't have an answer. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that there are. I mean, I think the, the parties, I don't think that there are issues of fact. I mean, to, to answer that, that question first, I mean, the, this was decided on that that's not something that either of us has looked at this record and said, yeah, in light of 303 creative, the court just can't tell. I mean, I, I think, I think we, there's not a, any real dispute about what happened here. I think there's really only a dispute about the legal significance of what happened, um, which then connects to uh, your question, Judge DeVore, about who has the burden of coming forward with facts if those get to be in equipoise or you know who's, who needed to carry their burden. So under the APA, the, the proponent of a position has the burden of bringing forth evidence on that. In the the way the free speech challenges came about, and we're in here, we're, we're in the world of an as applied free speech challenge. Um, uh, petitioners pleaded um, in their their response to the the bullies complaint. They they pleaded at their free speech challenge as an as an affirmative defense. So they took they said this is an affirmative defense for us. Um, and then under you know Clark versus um, the, the the Clark case um, through the United States Supreme Court, it says in an as applied challenge, showing the expressive component of conduct, that's a burden that's on the the party raising the defense. Um, so I, I and I think that goes to the, the burden of production and the burden of persuasion. I think the burden is firmly on the petitioners to show that their the, the, their conduct here, you know, is not actually conduct, that it's pure speech, or that the, that the expressive component um, of their conduct, the words, or whatever artistry they put into the cake rises to the level of being inherently expressive. Um, and that goes, and, and that's the analysis that this court engaged in 2017, and said, yeah, we, we think there's arguably enough here, there's enough expression to get to the expressive category, conduct category and then we go through that analysis and it's intermediate scrutiny and the state's interest is sufficient here. So I, I don't know if that answered your question, Your Honor. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanna go back a little and talk a little bit more about the, the specific stipulations in 303 Creative because I think they really matter in terms of, because as, as petitioners are arguing now, they wanna say under like 303 Creative means that looking backwards at the facts, in this case, it's pure speech. That as a matter of law, this is pure speech. Um, so the the parties stipulating three or three creative um, one just that the websites are expressive. I, we've never I, the, the state has never agreed that that cake as such is expressive. Um, and it's hard for me to know what you know a, a white wedding cake with pink ribbon frosting on it. I'm not sure how that's expressive. I, I don't know any particular message. Um, well, isn't, I mean, as I understand the position is that the cake itself is a message. The cake is sending a message of celebration and that the clients are choosing to not have to send that message by providing the cake 
for something they don't agree with. Well, but, but now the client's position is that the cake is pure conduct, so I don't think the cake itself, well, that, distinct from the frosting somehow, is, sends any message. Same from the designs. And so I'm, I'm not... But I, I, I mean, what I, what I heard was that you can't divorce the cake itself from the designs because the, the business is a custom design and baking business, and that the providing the cake itself is the message. The celebration message. So, the, so regardless of what's on it, the message is we're celebrating something we don't agree with. Well, but I, I think that there's just also the part of cake that it's cake, that it's a food to be eaten. Um, and so that, I think, is, is removes it from the world of pure speech, and that's what makes it conduct. I mean, I think if we, if we think about other foods that have some symbolic you know, significance, a turkey, you know, no one cooks a turkey hardly, aside from Thanksgiving, and we cook a turkey, and we make a presentation of it because it's this, it signifies bounty, and it has a historical tradition. Um, you know, but if I go to the, the butcher, and the butcher trusses the turkey in a particularly artistic way. Maybe can way, we get back to cake, and oh, sure. just sort of talk, I mean, we gave you sort of a sliding range of, of cakes in terms of, of sort of the degree of expression that, that might be implicated in them. And our initial decision definitely recognized that cake making you know, is, is or can be expressive conduct because it can be. There can be really intricate custom design celebrations of a particular couple, maybe with their images on it, particular words, whatnot. And then there can be the sheet cake that provides a canvas to the florist who's going to com you know, complete the decoration. Sort of given these sliding scales of cakes, you know, how, you know, sort of, you know, what rules you know, does the First Amendment, is, is it really the same rule for every single cake that somebody might request? No, I don't think so. And, and, that's, and that's been our, also been our position all along, that this isn't a case where, you know, if, if, that this was a cake that they wanted some, a very specific message written on it, a very spe specific message kind of carved on it. Um, we've said all along that we think that is a, a, a different case, and that's likely protected by the First Amendment. So I, I can kind of march through you know, some of your, your hypotheticals, Your Honor, real quick. So, you know, the, just a, a blank, sh a sheet cake frosted in white, that is simply, a, that's a, a commodity cake that you can get anywhere. I don't see any expressive, um, anything expressive coming from but that. Yeah, you know, and that, I'll just, you know, the, the, the petitioners argue, like, you go to Costco for those, but people do buy cake for quality, right? For oh, flavor, absolutely. they want people to have a pleasant eating that's, experience. So that cake might be purchased because of its sort of, cake components rather than its expressive components on that end of the scale. I think that's right. And so I was, I was somewhat surprised to, to hear that, I mean, that, that petitioners wouldn't, I mean, they wouldn't make that cake for, for a wedding purely based on the status of the participants. They wouldn't even make a, just a blank sheet cake that was to be used in a same-sex wedding, even if it had no you know, additional components. Um, you know, then the, the idea of, you know, making a, a tiered cake, I don't think that really changes the, the analysis either. There's no kind of the, the quantum of expression that goes into making a tiered cake. I think it's pretty minimal. I mean, there's some artistry in the design, but that's, there's artistry. On, on the message point, what other than wedding does a tiered cake communicate? I'm sorry, Your Honor, could you what, what other than wedding does a tiered cake communicate? Are there other celebrations that you see a tiered cake in, or is it kind of a wedding message? I mean, I, 
I don't think a tear cake necessarily Im implies a wedding. It's, I mean, that's commonly what you see, but I, you know, I, well, one of my kids has requested a tiered cake at his birthday just because he liked the idea of a really tall cake. And so I don't think there's anything necessary, uh, like there's not an, an inherent message. I hate in to refer design. outside the record, but the, uh, you've pointed out that one of the cakes in the other party's briefs was not in the record, but it's a tiered cake with a flag and a Bible. Uh, but it has a date from such a date to such a date. I take it that's not a wedding cake, and yet it's tiered. I hate to refer outside the yeah. record, but, but you have criticized that as being outside the record. Right. That is outside the record, correct? That's that my understanding, yes. I, I, I cannot find that in the record. Okay. Um, it, I mean, I, I think the heart of the issue is the sub-C um, hypothetical that you pose, where you have a custom-created cake that's you know captures and celebrates a unique relationship. Um, and so I, I think getting to, to that cake... Um, if, if, the, if the record reflects that kind of every cake that the baker makes, you know, putting on these facts where there's a denial of services before actually talking about the design, and the record shows that kind of every cake sends a very particular message, that would get us closer to the 303 creative world. But it, it's not enough to say that, you know, our, our cakes, this generalized celebratory message, um, kind of, we believe that goes into every cake. You need something objective that the viewer is going to take away a message. And this, the, the court talks about this in 303 Creative because it says what those stipulations show is that that the the website designer, you know, she sat down, talked with the people, um, kind of wanted to tell their story. But then what she the the it was clear that that was actually her celebration of the wedding as well that it was How is that i mean couldn't that be said then here i mean you go to the wedding celebration and people try the cake and everybody thinks somebody says like wow this is really good cake where did you get it and the um celebrants say oh we got it from sweet cakes by melissa i think so but i think that's the the facts in 303 creative and i think the stipulations are are quite stark in the idea that that that's, that she vets every individual client and says, okay, I want, I'm only going to produce a website where the message that I agree with it and that it will be her view of celebration. I mean, it, and again, the, part of the difficulty in, in 303 creatives, that was, I mean, there was a pre-enforcement challenge. So we're also just saying on what kind of, we, I, I don't recall the record having, you know, pictures of what this would look like, but it's that she would produce you know, a story for this couple, a narrative for this couple that is the couple story, but it's also her own story in a sense. Right, there was a lot of her being interjected into right. the and, websites. But and it's hard for me to see that with, if you have, you know, a white tiered cake with a purple ribbon on it that says fancy, that says this is a party, that says, you know, we went out and, you know, it signifies the value of the event because we're willing to have this extraordinary thing constructed that we don't normally have, but doesn't say anything from the clients about their individual views of marriage. Well, they, I mean, they made it though. So They're, sure, but I mean, that's, but that, that wraps back around to the idea that, I mean, the, the same could be said for anyone being served food or given a hotel room. The proprietor gives a hotel room to a person in a protected class. Maybe they disagree with, the, you know, kind of they, they don't want those people to be in their establishment, but the law still compels them to do that because that's, you know, that's conduct. Although, and whatever their, in, their individualized intent, that, that right, a restaurant, a, a restaurant is a more apt it, example because it has both the conduct, it's expressive conduct. You could argue that it's expressive conduct. Right. Um, sorry, go ahead. 
Let me, can I, because I'm looking at the breakpoint between um, compelled speech and expressive conduct, and I'm recalling from Klein One the observation that it isn't just a, a matter about what petitioners intend, you know, in their view, you know, whatever they do when they sit down and advise and design is speech. But Klein One made the observation that it isn't just only what the baker or the speaker, if you will, or the sleeper in the park intends. It's also how it's viewed by others in understanding what is it the court's looking at, pure speech or expressive conduct. And does that play, is, isn't that really the, the gist of your point about, yeah, yeah, it celebrates three-tiered cake with nice trimming, no language, tastes great, you go to custom view, but that's why it's in the expressive conduct category rather than pure speech. Is, you know, I'm trying to boil it down in light of that observation in Klein 1. You look at it from both points of view, the bakers, the observers, and eaters. That, because we, and, and we are, we're talking about the, the Klein's right to speak on this, that's, that's an issue. So there has to be a component of their speech that comes through, and I think that's the expressive conduct test kind of for, for what, you know, when is conduct inherently expressive? And that's what it looks at. What is the message that's being received? Not, because subjective intent is never enough. I don't, I mean, because that, that idea gets to, well, you know, if, if you violate any ordinary criminal law with a subjective intent to send a message, you know, you're not insulated from prosecution because you accompany, you know, that your conduct with speech or because you intend for your conduct to send a particular message. So the, I mean, it, would the, matter, it would matter to the outside viewers what the, whether the cake was obviously sending a message, not just what the clients had in their mind. Correct. Both matter, though, don't they? I mean, it's so, they, 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 I mean that, that's what's so complicated about, you know, a cake in... in particular. Um, it's people buy cakes because they're delicious. Some people, you know, there's such a range of couples that um, have, have weddings that, that they buy a range of cakes, some want something that sends a message, some don't. And so they can't implement themselves. They hire somebody to convey the message. Sometimes the baker might be a stenographer. Sometimes they might be, you know, an architect builder combo um, and so there's going to be a component where there's expression on the side of the creator and then there's going to be sort of the separate component of whether the observer of the cake views it as as some kind of message and it may be a rare wedding where a guest says um, do I think the vendors endorse this union but it's 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 possible you know how do we sort of in light of 303 creative, you know, start drawing some, you know, helpful lines that, you know, can help, you know, both, you know, legal officials, but also just regular people navigating the wedding industry sort out what's okay and what's not. So, I mean, I, I think it's the, the burden is on the business kind of to, to fit their service within the, the what 303 Creative sets out as, as kind of the pure speech model. So, you know, the idea that the, the 
website designer in 303 Creative, she vetted her clients. I mean, that sense makes me question whether it's a public accommodation um, because if the if someone comes to you and you say, well, I'm not necessarily going to take your money um, unless I want to perform this service for you. Um, but so but so I think going to step like making it very clear to customers who come in, look, I only make custom cakes f for messages that, that that send messages that I believe in. So making making that clear from the outset. Making, you know, and the nature of the service, I think if, if you're going to want to have the protection to say that my, my cake baking is pure speech, you, you can't offer, you know, the same cake to multiple people. You, you can't say, okay, well, I'll, I'll make a, a plain white, you know, tiered cake that just looks, you know, that, that's not, that doesn't send some kind of particularized message about the couple and about our views on marriage because that is, you know, gets back to kind of, well, that, that feels like a, Commodity sheet cake, you know, if you just stack up the tiers, um, that's, that's not sending anything individualized. That's not like 303 Creative where the, you know, where the views of the creator are kind of in, in every step of the process, the final product, the design, all the way through. And I think the viewer has to be able to look at that and say, oh yeah, this is, this is not, you know, just a cake. This is a cake by XYZ. Like there's that kind of style of, uh, uh, it's, it's so stylistic that it's something that, that can be observed from the outside. I mean, but so, but from the business's perspective, I think they would say, look, we, we only do custom cakes when we want to do custom cakes. You know, come to us, we'll decide whether we agree with the event that, you know, that you're holding. And, you know, Maybe they won't sell many custom cakes if they do that. Um, maybe they will, but it's, I, I think they could be, they would have to be up, should be up front, um, and that could help them fit more into the 303 creative divide. And that would also give fair notice to, you know, uh, potential customers so that they don't go in and suffer the humiliation that the complainants in this case suffered. And can I ask a follow-up on, on that? I mean, other aspects of this case, um, you know, in other parts, Bully, you know, it went after the, cl the clients for sort of expressing messages. Like, I mean, I think there was a component about a sign in the window and the mm -hmm. like. I believe those um, got wiped out of the, the case by, the, by, by this part. Um, so is it Bully's position now that it would be okay under Oregon's anti-discrimination laws to put a sign in the window saying, here's the scope of our services to community. You know, we think we have a First Amendment right to not provide certain services, and so this is our business model. I mean, I, I think at some level, yes, that that would have to be okay. If the, if the baker has, you know, a right to refuse services to do, you know, there are certain messages I won't send in my cakes that you know, that the, the baker has to be able to communicate that, whether that's in a sign or something else. And, and I think that's, it, I think that what I'm suggesting is that it, it would have to be quite specific. I mean, it, it can't just, you know, and, and it would be an awkward, you know, admittedly an awkward thing for a public accommodation um, to have say, okay, well, I've kind of had tiers of service, which makes me wonder, well, if you're doing this kind of private cake service, maybe it's not a public accommodation to, at all, and this is a completely different case. Because um, a, a public accommodation, by definition, is it's a service that's offered, you know, to the public and, you know, services, accommodations that are in their nature distinctly private, don't fit under the law. 
Um, so it, and that's always been one answer to this cake. And I mean, that's an answer to the hypotheticals about, well, what about speechwriters? Or what about, you know, poets? Just like, like speechwriters aren't accommodations. I, I appreciate the discussion because I think it's really helpful about what kind of rule would, would be given. And if there's a sign that says, you know, we do custom cakes, and in order to service you, we need to be sure that this does not offend our First Amendment uh, rights that we have. Um, that's an interesting sign, however carefully worded with Bowley's, I suppose, suggestion might be helpful. But what about, you know, the, the possibility in the, uh, of saying we don't do custom cakes except uh, because we do serve the public, here are three. We're not going to sit down and talk to you about what kind of design you want and who you are and all that, but here's three pattern cakes that are just a matter of baking and putting on the icing and the pretty little trim and the blue stripe down the... Here are three cakes we do for anyone. Will that work? Um, and then they leave any custom efforts to, you know, their chances with the First Amendment as to whether they... that they've shown enough to show infringement on their uh, expressive conduct. But if they just had three pattern things and then everything else is, well, let the courts decide. I mean, that'd be one way of approaching it. The problem, and the problem with my first answer, is that you're still, to some degree, you're having citizens who get full services and citizens who don't get full services. And the point of the public accommodations law is that everyone should get their full service. So saying, well, you get to select these three cakes uh, feels awfully close to you have to sit here or you have to sit here. Um, so it's it's a really hard question, and this is just the hard question in in th that comes up through the public accommodations laws. And so I I don't think that's a, that's a complete answer. I mean, I I th maybe it's it's that, and but because if you if you would bake a, a custom cake that doesn't send a specific message, like if you're going to bake custom cakes just based on you know, the flavors, because this is all together, you know, the, the flavors in the frosting, the flavors in the cake, how tall it is, how many layers, um, all of those things that don't send a specific message and you'll do that for well, one set of individuals, but you won't do it for another set of individuals based on their protected classification, then that should be regulated by the public accommodations law, and it is. And so just, and just labeling as, a, as you know, custom it doesn't doesn't get you there because you know anything can be custom. A sandwich can be custom. A dinner can be custom. You that's that road leads to you know the public accommodation laws going. But that away. gets back to the where we kind of all started, which was the evidence. There would have to be the evidence would have to be there regarding the not customization, but the aspect of speech that is more akin to architecture or design or art, something that is inherently an intangible thing, which is one of the most, the challenges to this, in this, is that a court or an agency is now put in the position of judging what is artistic enough. And and so, Your Honor, I, I think on an as-applied basis, some of those issues, these are very difficult thinking about in the big picture and in the, the abstract. But as you narrow down and think on, in an as-applied challenge with the burden on the petitioner to come forward and say, this is my speech, 
it's different. Like we think what this record shows is that you know the clients made a custom cake for you know the the mother of one of the complainants. And I, may, may I finish my my answer? Okay. Um, and and that was quite quite a plain cake, you know. And essentially the client the. The record again. I think this was evidence developed at the damages portion of the hearing. So there's um, there's in interesting record wrinkles with summary determination here. Um, but the the point is that the the, the record at least at, at at that phase shows that that the 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 complainants wanted a cake similar to one that had been made for someone else, um, and the denial was they wouldn't make that same cake they would make for someone else because of protected status. And so if that's what the record shows, that's a violation of the public accommodations law. Whereas if the record shows that said, you know, we had similar, you know, similar intent from um, the complainants, but then the record shows, no, truly, they, their, their cakes are completely unique, one-off, that send a message about the couple and about, you know, the nature of marriage, um, all the things that are subjectively in the client's mind, and there's objective evidence of that, because it's, you know, it's something you have to produce. Um, that gets us, I think, to 303 Creative, but these facts do not. Can I ask one question, and we'll give a little bit additional time to uh, petitioners as, as well. Um, following up on what you, you just said, and back to sort of the summary determination posture, if we look at the facts, it's just sort of what this particular cake was. It sounds like Bully's argument is, you know, the refusal to provide that um, and the application of the anti-discrimination laws does not violate the First Amendment rights, but sort of if we look at sort of more broadly at the business model, model, there could be implications for the First Amendment for a custom design model. Can you refresh us on to what extent this case involves solely retrospective relief and to what extent it, it involved prospective relief? So it, yeah, the, the, there's the, the violation of the public accommodations law, I mean, the, no, I'm, Section 403, um, and then the, the order says, you know, the, it's, it's essentially, it's forward-looking, do not violate this in the future. Um, so, the, and that's, you know, on the, on the last page of the order. So the, there is a forward-looking portion of, like, do not conf conform your business practices and to... And do, do we need to analyze those questions separately, backwards and forwards? I don't think so on, on this record. I mean, what we have is, again, like the... I mean, the, the narrowness, I, in, in some ways it, it depends on how, how broad of a, of a ruling this court wants to issue. I mean, because the, the, the original decision in 2017, you know, affirmed, and it's, I think what, looking at that decision, it says this kind of, when you have a denial of services at this point, and this kind of generalized custom model, that doesn't get you to First Amendment protections. Um, and I think that's enough of a, a rule of law this court could, could say that again, or just rely on its previous decision. Um, so I don't think there's anything necessary about the relief that needs to go back and get separate analysis. All right. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, let's add an additional three minutes to petitioner's rebuttal time. Thank you. Um, so Bully began by arguing that there are no issues of fact in this case, and we agree. Uh, Melissa's declaration was undisputed at summary judgment. Bully submitted no countervailing evidence. Uh, to the extent there are ambiguities in the record, as uh, you noted, Chief Judge, Bully entered summary judgment against us, so all inferences must be drawn in our favor. Bully keeps bringing up the mother's cake. 
Uh, that came up. On, on the procedural, can you refresh? Was it cross motions for summary determination? Cross, cross motions. We, okay. Yeah. And so we would be in the position of deciding, you know, whether it goes one way or whether there's factual disputes that yeah. would we, require. Yeah, we back. think the court got it exactly right in describing the Klein's business model in, in Klein 1. Uh, and we think that based on the, that description of the facts in that case, we should prevail de novo. Uh, so, uh, Bowley keeps bringing up the mother's cake. Uh, that came up during the hearing on damages uh, after summary judgment. It's also ambiguous. I think this court got it right in Klein 1 when it interpreted the, the, the statement that the complainants wanted a cake like the one the mother ordered to mean a customized design cake, just like what Melissa Klein does in the ordinary course of business. That's what Klein 1 says. And that's actually a mandated inference, given the procedural posture of this case. Um, I think, uh, Judge DeVore, you brought up that uh, the cake that we included in our papers was outside the record. The reason is that this case was decided at summary judgment against us. We actually tried to introduce uh, several cake designs during the hearing on damages. And the ALJ said that was inadmissible because it was irrelevant to damages. So we tried to put forth more evidence after summary judgment. Uh, we have several cakes. You can find these on the record, uh, record on appeal, pages 298, 299. For example, page 298 is a cake shaped like a football and basketball field, which shows the, the couple's athletic exploits. Uh, on the cake on page 299 is designed like an Xbox. It's supposed to show, I think, how the couple met or their shared interest in gaming. These are the kinds of cakes that Melissa designs. We couldn't introduce those into this record because, as I said, it was decided on summary judgment against us. Those were um, exhibits that were accepted in the damages portion? No, we tried to introduce them during the damages hearing, but they were seemed uh, not relevant, and so they weren't admitted in, into evidence. The one that's in your brief, was that one of these? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't, that, that one's not, I was not even attempted to be in the record? I don't think it's in the record, no. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we, we also uh, uh, want to point out that the clients pick and choose also who they want to, what messages they want to uh, play to with their cakes. They don't just... Uh, refuse uh, to make cakes for same-sex weddings. The declaration shows that they won't bake a cake for a divorce, for example. So they are designing and, and making cakes based on the message. Um, uh, as far as uh, uh, Judge Hellman's point that uh, 303 Creative does put you in a difficult position, we think it's the same position you were in before. The, the question of what is speech and what is art has always been uh, in play when the First Amendment uh, comes into play. And I think it's a difficult one to determine what counts as expressive uh, art and what does not. But I don't think that 303 Creative changes that. Uh, I think that was just, uh, you know, when, when the court said that the First Amendment protects art, that's going to require courts to determine what counts as art. Uh, and we think we, are sat we satisfy the traditional test because Melissa Klein in the ordinary course of business makes drawings which have been long recognized to be artistic. Uh, and, and even though those designs are embodied ultimately in a cake, we don't think that means that she loses her First Amendment rights. Um, uh, 
think uh, I don't know if the court wants to uh, talk about um, question four. Uh, so question four didn't really come up during argument. Uh, our position on that is that three through creative doesn't depend on the type of marriage, the number of guests, or, or the wedding venue, but it does depend on the vendor's beliefs. So if, for example, a vendor uh, just doesn't want to make cakes uh, for to celebrate a sacramental uh, marriage, uh, then that uh, vendor would, would only be protected for those types of weddings. Here we know that the clients, based on what they said in the record, uh, they, they think that any celebration of a union uh, between a same-sex couple uh, it violates their beliefs and violates the Bible. They take that from uh, the book of Timothy, and so they wouldn't create a, a, a wedding cake for any of the celebrations, I think, listed in those hypotheticals. And so does that position ultimately boil down to the position that it doesn't matter how the message would be received. You know, for example, if a cake, they've made a cake for the context, let's say there's no words on it, you know, and, you know, any, and the cake appears in any of the contexts identified, and, and no objective right. invitee of the wedding looks at the cake and say, says, oh, I, you know, attributes viewpoints to the bakers based on the fact that the cake shows up you know, in that, that context, it doesn't matter, in your view, for purposes of the, the First Amendment, that nobody would understand the message to be what the clients feel like the message is. So I think what 303 Creative says, I mean, 303 Creative was a pre-enforcement challenge, right? It did not involve any particular set of facts about any particular wedding. It was all unions. Yes, that makes it challenging in and of itself. Yeah, so we think that we're just like three or three creative here. The, the vendor's beliefs here are the same, and so I don't think any of the particular facts matter. In terms of imputation, I think what matters here and what three or three creative says is protected is not a specific message sent by the clients, but the, the idea that they have to utter in their minds something that they believe to be false when they're creating art. That's what's protected here. That's what 303 Creative and I get, says. And, and you may be right about the effect of 303 Creative. I'm speaking for myself. I'm still still wrestling with it. But isn't it un, unusual in an as-applied context when you're you're determined when a court is determining whether a statute is applied to particular circumstances results in a violation of rights to not to not take into account the very specific circumstances and sort of, you know, think circumspectly about, you know, is, you know, is this a message? What is the message? How would it be understood? You know, what are the, the and, and to, I mean, I guess you know, the other sort of areas we see this in is sort of deciding what qualifies as, you know, pornography or not such that it can be prohibited and there's there's been you know, cases that set up sort of objective factors to determine whether it qualifies or not and then those objective factors get applied to the specific facts to understand to determine from a legal perspective sort of what's the message conveyed by a particular piece of work why why doesn't the same approach or why shouldn't the same approach apply in this context in assessing whether a particular, you know, wedding cake conveys a message, you know, such that it, in, in a way that results in a burden on the person, 
on the rights of the person who makes it. This may come down to, I think, the distinction between speech and expressive conduct. I know that in expressive conducts, it does matter uh, whether the conduct it can be seen by the public as sending a message. We, we're not arguing that uh, the client's bakery involves expressive conduct. What we're arguing is they're involved in speech. So I, so I think uh, in terms of imputation, uh, we think that the First Amendment protects ghostwriters as much as named authors. So it doesn't matter if the public is associating the message with the clients. That said, if the court does think that matters, we think Bully's findings does, do show that the clients tend to go to the weddings, that they have a, a, a van emblazoned with their logo, that they put business cards near the cake. Uh, and so we think that to the extent imputation does matter, we do think we've satisfied that. And we're not arguing that circumstances never matter. We're just arguing that in this case, where the clients are involved in a very peculiar business, when they're customizing cakes for a particular couple, when they're designing those cakes, that they are protected. But circumstances may well matter. This court might have to ask, what do the, what do the complainants exactly want? If, for example, a business is actually selling sheet cakes for weddings or you know, other celebrations. I think it's just a record-based question. And on this record, we've shown that the clients do not offer to the public uh, non-expressive wedding cakes. What they offer to the public is custom-made, designed wedding cakes. That's what, again, distinguishes them from other vendors like Costco, like Baskin Robbins. This is why they charge much more money than those uh, sellers. And that's why we think they're protected in this case. Um, I think uh, on a scale of things, would you put them on a higher level than a flower provider or a wedding photographer? I think so. I think because they're sitting down with the customers and drawing designs on paper, I think they're distinguishable from, from a florist uh, who you know spreads flowers around. Uh, I don't know a lot about uh, florists, but I think that uh, because I think the clients are more analogous to a fashion designer than they are to a florist uh, or any of those businesses that are primarily, I think, uh, arranging objects. I think arrangements maybe could be art uh, in some circumstances, but I don't think that they're exactly the same as the And clients. the wedding photographer, in your view, wouldn't have the same level of art as a cake designer? Uh, I, think, uh, I think photography and videography has been classified as art by the court. So I think they would be engaged in speech. I think there's a Ninth Circuit case on this, Telescope Media. Um, so the court has no further questions. I'll just close by saying that this case has been going on for over a decade. Um, the, the bully in the process has destroyed the client's business, denigrated the religion's, uh, religion as prejudice, and fined them over $100,000 for quoting the Bible in a conversation about religious truth. I think two or three creatives should end this case. Police order should be vacated. Thank you. Thank you both for your arguments. The case just argued is under submission, and we are in recess until our 11 a.m. remote argument.
So that's what happened at the Oregon Court of Appeals today. We will keep you up to date uh, as soon as we hear any kind of decision from the court and also give you our analysis of what that decision uh, has to say about the case of Aaron and Melissa Klein. If you want to see America's religious heritage defended, uh, we invite you to support our work here at First Liberty Institute. Just click on the big red give button up at the top of the page. Thank you in advance from all of us. First Liberty is fighting for what matters most.